Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Richard Parr. This is the best in the world. We speak to Olympic champions, world champions, world number ones, world record holders, all on this podcast to find out what they do differently to be the most talented athletes on the planet. And of course, it's a perfect time for this podcast because we are in the middle of the Olympic Games. Have you been watching it? Have you been enjoying it? What's been your favorite event that you've been watching? Why don't you tell me? On my Twitter, that's at Richard underscore Parr, or on my Facebook page, Best in the World with Richard Parr, or on my website, richardparr.net. What I love about the Olympic Games is you start to watch different events which you might not normally watch. Like, for example, I was watching the diving before the water got green with the, I believe it was algae, was it the algae which turned it green? But before the water got green, I was watching the diving with Tom Daly and the Chinese pair who were fantastic. Uh, I also watched a bit of the track cycling. I'm not normally a, a track cycling fan, but people like Callum Skinner and Jason Kenny have got me inspired into that sport. And of course, I've enjoyed the sports which you traditionally connect to with the Olympic Games. Katie Ledecky was amazing in the swimming. Michael Phelps, of course, breaking more and more records. And this week, we've got the athletics. Usain Bolt has already won the 100 metres when I record this podcast, David Rudisha, fantastic in the 800 meters, the Kenyan. He was so fast, just pushing at the end to, to retain that gold medal. And of course, this Wednesday, which is when this podcast comes out, we've got the start of the men's decathlon. Can Ashton Eaton successfully defend his title from four years ago? Well, before Ashton Eaton, the world's greatest athlete the winner in 2008 of the decathlon title was brian clay and brian is this week's guest on the podcast it is so great to have brian on the show he won silver in 2004 and he tells us what he did differently four years later to win gold it's a really interesting chat with brian he tells me why he stayed outside of the olympic village when he was competing He tells me about his training routine and also the dangers of overtraining. You've got to be careful of that. But he's also very strong on the different methods athletes can use to get funding. That's a really interesting part of the conversation. Some quite strong views there from the 2008 decathlon Olympic champion really good chat with him if you want to know more about brian his website's brianclay.com you can follow him on twitter at brian clay and he's also got a book called redemption there'll be a link in the show notes page and on the website where if you want to learn more about brian you can purchase his book read more about the greatest athlete on the planet brian clay just before we get to the interview with brian clay i want to tell you about this week's sponsor and once again it is Audible, audible audible.com. They're offering you a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial. All you've got to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash best, audibletrial.com forward slash best. Not only does it help you because you get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial, but it also helps me by clicking that link, by taking that free audiobook download and that 30-day free trial you help me because they help support the show the more of you that click the more of you that do that 
and help yourselves. You're helping me as well, and I would really appreciate your help. All you've got to do, that website address once more is audibletrial.com forward slash best. They've got over 180,000 titles to choose from, and you can play it on your iPhone, on your Android, your Kindle, or your MP3 player. Lots of ways that you can continue to listen from the greatest athletes on the planet on Audible because they've got lots of sports books that you can listen to and lots of other books as well if that's what you're into. Well, I like listening and learning to the greatest athletes on the planet and we're going to do that right now with the 2008 decathlon Olympic gold medalist Brian Clay. I was speaking to him just before the start of the Olympic Games. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Brian Clay, welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. We're just hours away from the opening ceremony of the 2016 Olympics. What are your memories of being part of an opening ceremony? Uh, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, the opening ceremonies is, is I think, that moment uh, when you're an Olympian, especially when you're a first-time Olympian, um, that uh, you... Um, kind of picture and dream about, you know, walking in from under the stadium, carrying the U.S. flag in your opening ceremonies uh, gear uh, with all the other athletes from Team USA. And and it's the the, the kickoff of, of the Olympics. And so um, that moment of, of entering that stadium and seeing the cameras going off and um, everybody waving flags in the, in the stadium and being able to walk around and, and really represent your country alongside of all of your other um, fellow Olympians. Uh, it, it's, it's really that special moment uh, for so many of the Olympians. Um, and the only thing that I think compares to that is if you come home with a medal. Um, and so it's, it's really one of those big special moments of, of the Olympic Games. And I've heard when people go to the athletes' village and are part of the opening ceremony, it can be quite overwhelming at times. How are you able to kind of channel into what you're doing and forget everything that's going on around it? You know, I think it can be a little overwhelming uh, because you're realizing the realization of that moment um, and what it means and, you know, four years of of hard work and um, for some people even more than that, it's it can be a little overwhelming, but I but I also think at least for me, um, I was so focused on what was still to come uh, that uh, that you kind of find yourself, or at least for me, I found myself a little guarded. And so while I went and enjoyed the opening ceremonies, um, uh, the the emotion of it, I, I wasn't able to to allow myself to feel completely um, because uh, because I was still getting ready to compete and I, and I still had a job to do and and simply getting there just wasn't the, the end goal for, for me. And so, um, and so because I was still focused and because I was still trying to, uh, get a job done, um, you know, while it was a, a great time for me, it, it was definitely still a time when I was not allowing myself to, to go to a place, um, I could let my guard down and, and get completely emotional with where I was at. Do you notice the difference between athletes? Can you see it in them of those who are just happy to be there and those that are actually going for gold and are going to win medals? Um, you know, I, I I feel like I can. Um, I, I know that that sounds funny and not that I would ever throw any athlete under the bus, um, but but I know that when I was competing... Um, there were certain people that, that I was watching. Um, and, and I basically, I, in fact, I remember in Beijing, I remember saying it to my coach. I remember looking at an athlete, um, actually a couple athletes and saying, you know, the morning of the, the second day that morning, as we are warming up to go into the, the competition, I remember looking at specific athletes and saying, coach, like he's done he's not going to, he's not going to finish the day today. Um, and I could just tell it was a, the decathlon is a little different than I think the other events. Um, and so there's, there's a look and the only reason why I know this look is because I've been there before. (laughs) I know, I know what it looks like and feels like because I've experienced it personally. Um, and there is a look, 
that that the Catholics will have when they're completely overwhelmed, when they've used up everything they had the day before, and and they just have nothing left going into the second day. And it tends to be um, a look that you'll see a lot of younger decathletes get, um, guys that have never, um, uh, guys that have never uh, competed on on a world stage or a big stage before like that. And you know what ends up happening is emotionally, physically, uh, spiritually, socially, you've used all that you have, and you're on you're on empty uh, going into the second day. And, and when you see that look, you know it. And, uh, and I remember seeing a couple of people that had that look going to the second day. And sure enough, um, they turned around and uh, didn't finish the day competing. Um, but, but it's not a fun place to be. It's, it's a really, really tough place to be um, as an athlete. Did they set their goals wrong, in your opinion? Should every athlete be setting their goals to be the champion? Because obviously they've got the basic skills, they've got the basic tools, it's something they they know all about that they love and hopefully they're in the right environment of training, nutrition, etc. But is it is it a lot about mindset of you're going there to win or you're just going there just to enjoy yourself or just for the experience? If you were to set that goal higher... Do, do people come across differently for it? Um, no, I don't think so. I think, you know, everybody has different goals and, and everybody wants to accomplish different things. I, I think it's more about experience. Um, you know, when you go to a big meet, uh, there's there's nothing like the Olympics, you know, at any other time in the world. Um when you go to a world championships, there's nothing like that, uh, any other time in the world. It's, you know, same thing for other sports, you know, when you go to the NBA finals or when you go to the Super Bowl, you just can't replicate that. And so you've got a lot of people who are athletes who for the first time show up to these big events. And like you said, the, your emotions start to run wild. You, you go to the Olympic Village and you go to the um, opening ceremonies and, and you're practicing around all these other athletes and you're living in the dorms with all these other athletes. And, and if you're not careful, you know, you're, you're, you're emotionally, um, you will be drained. There's all this emotional nervousness and anxiousness and energy that, that gets spent when you're in um, situations like that. It's why I stayed. Um, I didn't stay in the village when I when I competed. I I spent a lot of extra money to rent a um, uh, a, a, a an apartment or or a house um, uh, that was off site that I could just stay at with my coaches, and that was it. Um, because uh, I had had the experience of a world championships before that. Um, all of those games that I was in, and and I and I knew how much that nervous energy um, uh, affected you, and I knew how much you know being in that environment a week before you compete um, would have you completely drained before you were done. And so, not everybody athletes like that, but but that was definitely how it was for me. And so I stayed in a different place and uh, and was able to to keep my my emotions in check. Um, I was able to keep physically in check. I wasn't up till all hours of the night. I was able to maintain my schedule and um, and that sort of thing. Uh, I was able to eat when I wanted to or, or relax when I wanted to, and, you know, do whatever it is that I needed to do to prepare. Um, and so that was because of the experience that I had. It was because of the experience of my coaches, um, knowing that and understanding that. And, uh, and I think ultimately that's what allowed me to, to go out and compete to the best of my ability. But as a young athlete or as a young decathlete um if you don't know those things you know you go and you want to experience it all so you're staying in the village and you're going to the, the kind of the community track to work out and you're you know you're running around during the day and having fun and checking things out and talking to other athletes and you know doing that sort of thing that becomes a social thing for you um but what you don't realize is how much that takes out of you um before the games 
And clearly that experience helped you because in 2004, you won silver in the decathlon in Athens. And then four years right. later in Beijing, you won gold. Was there anything mm -hmm. else other than the experience in particular that you changed, which helped you improve turning that silver into gold? Uh, it was just the realization that, um, that, that the gold was closer than I had ever imagined. And so, you know, there's a part of every athlete when they see um, the guys that are at the top. Um, you know, when I was, when I was a little kid, I would watch Carl Lewis run or I would watch, um, uh, uh, you know, Dan O'Brien or Michael Johnson. Uh, you know, those were the guys that were competing when I was kind of growing up, you know, from a little kid all the way through kind of high school. Um, and I remember looking at guys like Michael Johnson, uh, and I remember watching him run at the Olympics um, in, in 1996. And I remember watching him break the world record. And, and you look at that, and, and sometimes I think what you do as an athlete is you you begin to idolize that. You begin to um, to think that these these people are not human, um, that they've been given some special gift that, you know, that, that makes them different than, than everyone else. Um, and, and what I learned as I was uh, competing is that, you know, the guys that I was competing against were just human. Um, the guys that were the best in the world were just human. Um, and I, I began to learn that, you know, listen, there are things that they're good at um, and there are things that I'm good at. And, and I started to see that and I started to realize like, okay, like this isn't me going up against some sort of God, you know, and, and just kind of hoping that I do well. This is two guys going against each other in a few different events. And the person that makes the least amount of mistakes is the one that's going to win. And so I started to, to actually believe that, that I was better. Um, and so it wasn't about... I believe I can win the gold medal. It was looking at the guy that won the gold medal and, and understanding and studying and, and realizing where I was better and where I needed to just try to hang on. And, and, you know, I knew that he was going to beat me, but, but I was going to stay as close as I possibly could. Um, and at the end of the day, I just believed that, that I could, you know, I could will it, I could compete, um, and that I would, I would be better than, than he was. Um, and I knew that if it came down to the same conditions, um, the same track, uh, and all that kind of stuff, I, I, I was confident that I would, I was a better competitor and I would, I would rise to the occasion and beat him. Um, and that's, that's what I did. Uh, if you look at when I, when I went out, I, I went out to compete. I knew, um, when I had to show up and, and I had to compete and I would, my, my mind and my body would, would do things that, that, you know, in other meets during the year, it just wouldn't do, it couldn't do. But, but there was something about um, looking at the people that were the best in the world and saying, I don't care if they jump, you know, uh, eight meters in the long jump, then I'm going to jump 801 meters in the long jump. You know, I, I was mm. going to beat them by one centimeter because I didn't care. Um, and I think when you look at some of the best people in the world, that's, that's what they do. They, they compete. It doesn't matter who it is. Um, it doesn't matter how high that bar gets set. They're going to compete and they're going to do whatever it takes to pull off the win. Um, you watch some of the greatest in the world. That's what makes the moments that they have, right? I mean, Michael Jordan, you know, in, in the NBA finals that he was in, you know, I remember times where everything was pointing against him, you know, he had the flu and, and he wasn't feeling good. And, you know, he just looked like he was, you know, on his deathbed out there and, and they needed a point and he would go out and, and make it happen. You know, mm. all the odds didn't matter. It just did not matter. He was going to make it happen. Um, and when you, when you watch guys like that, um, you know, that's what they're doing. It, it, they're just competing. You know, they, they're not thinking about how they feel. They're not thinking about what the odds are. They're not thinking about, oh, this guy's better or he's not better or he's better prepared or, or no, it's just, I need a point. 
and you just go get it done. And, and that's what it was for me. It was like, I knew that, that when it came down to it, I knew that I could get it done. I knew that I was better. I knew that I was going to compete better than anybody else out there. Um, and then you add in the preparation and the confidence of preparation and all that. Um, and, and I, I think I was, I used to believe that I was unstoppable. I didn't think anybody could beat me. Mm, exactly. What you just said about learning from the best, muzzling yourself on people who were successful before you and taking what mm -hmm. they've done and, and improving and becoming the champion yourself. So let's learn from, from you, Brian. And why don't you tell us about your training routine and what, what you would do, what would be your daily routine when you were training to become an Olympic champion? What time would you get up? What would you eat? How long and what type of training what would you do? How many times a week? Maybe just give us an insight on that, please. Yeah, I mean, I trained, you know, between six and seven hours a day. Um, I'd wake up at uh, 6 a.m. Uh, I'd be at the weight room by seven. I'd lift from seven till about nine. I'd run home, get a quick snack. Um, at about 9.30, between 9.30 and 10, I'd head out to the track and kind of do whatever I needed to do to get ready for my for my training day. And at 10, we'd start warming up. Um, and from 10 until three or four, um, I was training on the track, going through events. Um, I trained a little different than, than some other people trained for the decathlon. Um, my goal was to make myself as uncomfortable as possible on a, on a daily um, basis um, so that when I competed, the decathlon was something that was easy. Um, you know, I always told people, as much as I hated doing the decathlon, because of the, you know, the, the, because of where you have to take yourself during a decathlon. Um, I hated training even worse because we do, you know, what felt like sometimes a decathlon in practice, <laughs> you know, yeah. I feel like we do more than decathlon in practice sometimes. I mean, it was like the amount of repetitions that we, that I would do um, during one practice uh, was incredible and we wouldn't do anything like that in, in a normal, you know, in a decathlon. Um, and so when I would come out, I mean, yeah, even things like I would lift before practice. Um, and I know that, you know, some coaches have their ideas on whether you should lift before or after practice. Um, I did it before. And, and, and the reason why I did it before was purely a mental thing. Um, and, and, and again, I, I, you know, I totally get it. Maybe it's not the best thing to do a lot of times they say not to lift before because, um, you know, because your, your fast twitch muscles and things like that, you're frying that system. And, you know, those things take a, a longer period of time to, to, um, to recover or, you know, you're using all your glycogen stores. And so uh, that takes a little while for it to, you know, to come back. But, but for me, the reason why I did it that way is because I knew that every time I got into a meet, uh, one of the thoughts that went through my head was I'd show up to the, the morning of the decathlon. I'd walk out onto the track to, uh, to warm up and I would think, man, I feel great. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to lift this morning. Um, you know, uh, I'm fresh because I didn't have to lift this morning. And if I, if I didn't have to lift this morning, then, then I know what, there are things that I can do. And so I had bare minimums that I was trying to meet. Um, and, and I would meet those times or those distances in practice. And so the, the example is, is if I went out and I was getting ready to run uh, or I was getting ready to long jump and I was a little tired from long jumping, I would think to myself, well, listen, I, I haven't even lifted this morning. I, I didn't do all this other stuff. And, and on any given day at practice, I know that I can jump, you know, seven meters, 70 or seven meters, 75. So when I was in a competition, I knew that even if I was a little tired or I wasn't feeling just right, I knew that I was still fresher than I would normally be on a, on a practice day. And I knew that on any given day at practice, even with lifting and dead legs in my hardest week of training, I could jump 775. I knew that when I got onto the runway, it didn't matter what I felt like, what the conditions were, I was going to jump at least 775. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so, so my goal during practice was to make myself – uncomfortable it was to take myself through um and to get the mental discipline um to not care if it was raining so we practiced in the rain um 
to not care who I was competing against. So I would compete against the throwers and, and the 400 meter runners and the individual event guys. Um, but, but it was to, it was to put myself in situations where I had to focus on my ability and what I was good at. And I had to challenge myself to, to be better than what I was. Um, and to take myself to an uncomfortable spot all the time so that when I got to a competition, the competition was easy. Mm. With that style of training though, was there ever uh, any danger of overtraining or injuries by doing something like that? Yeah, I mean, all the time. I think if you look at my career, there were many, many times when when I was injured. Um, many, many times when when uh, I wasn't able to finish a meet because, because uh, you know, I was... I stepped over that line of, of, uh, you know, training to be the best that I could possibly be and overtraining. Um, and, and it's, I always tell people it's a very fine line between overtraining and training to be the best in the world. Um, and if you step over that line, you're going to pay the price. Um, but, but, I think it's every athlete's job to flirt with that line as, as best they can. And so, um, and, and that's what I did, you know, I, uh, and I think sometimes to my detriment and probably sometimes I didn't listen to my coaches like I should have and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, but that's every athlete's journey and, um, that journey will look different for, for each person. And listen, some people I think are, are born with, um, you know, some skill that the other people aren't born with. I, I wish every athlete was born with the same amount of skill and it was just a matter of how smart you trained and how well you trained and all that. But that's just not the truth. And um, I think uh, for me, you know, I was born, uh, you know, with a little bit of talent, but but I don't think I was anything special. Um, I just worked really, really hard. So after that hard work, you eventually became the Olympic champion in decathlon. You were the best in the world, the world's greatest athlete. How did it feel when you'd finally won that medal? Uh, you know, it felt great. It was um, it was a, a culmination of you know a lifetime of uh, of work. Um, I remember um, after you know winning the gold and stuff some years after doing that, I, I was going through some storage bins and, and one of the uh, storage bins that I went through had my high school yearbook in it for my senior year of high school in 1998. And I started looking through it just to see how silly I was growing up, you know? Um, and, uh, and I remember looking through that and seeing all these messages from people saying, you know, you're going to be in the Olympics one day and don't forget, you know, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget me, you know, that sort of thing. And I remember that when I, I looked and I, when I signed everyone's yearbook, I actually signed it with the Olympic rings um, under my name. And, and I actually put uh, 2004 on there. Um, and, you know, in 1998, there was no way for me to ever know if I was going to make it to the Olympics. I mean, I wanted to, but, but, you know, wanting to go to the Olympics and actually getting there were two different stories. And I think I even signed it in a gold pen. Um, but, um, it was just one of those things. Um, I had wanted to go to the games, uh, for, since I was a little kid. Uh, and it, and when you think back on all the things that had to go right, um, all the events in, in your life that have to go right uh, down to the weather, down to the school that you choose and, and for college and your coach and um, being healthy and not getting hurt and, you know, going every day without getting into a car accident or falling off a bike or, or twisting an ankle or slipping or, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, everything there's, everything in your life has to be orchestrated just the right way um, for you to, to be able to have the opportunity to, to compete at the Olympic games. And then you've got to show up on these two days that, that someone else picks um, and you've got to have the best meet of your life um, on those two days. And you can't have a headache. You can't let your asthma bother you. You can't, not be ready you can't um 
uh, have an off day. I mean, it's, it's really incredible when, when you think about it. And, uh, and, and so to, to actually not only make the Olympic team and, and make it through the Olympic trials process, which is, you know, pretty daunting in itself, but then to go to the Olympic games and compete on a global level, um, and, and make your dreams come true. Uh, when, when you realize that it's, it is just, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. There's no words to describe it. I mean, it's overwhelming and it's, it's, uh, uh emotional and, and all those types of things, but, but those words don't even do it justice. I was just going to say, and, and how does it then affect your life? How does it then change your life once you have that gold? You know, for me, I think what it's done is it's, it's shown me that nothing is impossible. Um, I have a saying that I always tell people, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a kind of a visionary kind of dreamer kind of guy. And so, um, I'm constantly coming up with ideas of, of businesses or products or, or things that I, I want to try and make happen. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, a lot of times, you know, people will look at me and they'll be like, wow, that's a really big, you know, dream or that's a really big, uh, idea. And I'm always like, listen, crazier dreams have come true for me. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, I've had wilder dreams and, and they've come true and everybody kind of looks at me and they go, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I guess you're right. You know? Um, and, and, and that's really what the gold has done for me. It's, it's taught me that, that nothing in this world is impossible. Um, it may take a little while. Uh, it may take a lot of hard work. You may have to take yourself to places that you've never been to before. You may have to take yourself to the edge of what you think you can handle or what you think um, is possible. And you may have to do that on a daily basis for, for, you know, half of your life. But if it's something that you really want, if it's something that uh, is important to you, um, then, then, you know, you'll do it. And, and if you can do that and, and get everything that you've got towards a goal like that, then I don't think anything is impossible. Um, and so that's kind of a, a, a little bit of a model that I've been living by lately. And, um, and it's, it's actually playing out to be true in the rest of my life as well. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what the gold has done for me. The other thing that it's done for me is it's, of course, given me a platform to, to go out and speak and to go out and share my story with, with people and, um, and to inspire them and to, uh, help them to want to be the best that they can be and to strive to be excellent in the things that they do. And, and so that's what I get to go around and do. And, and it's given me, you know, uh, uh, kind of a, a plethora of knowledge, um, in terms of uh, things like I get to, I consult now and, and do some consulting for corporate uh, corporate America and um, help build uh, brand ambassador programs and athlete programs, understanding the life of an athlete um, and what they go through. I was a part of most of my negotiations, my contract negotiations. So I understand um, what those look like and, um, and, and what those are, uh, what athletes expect in contracts and what corporate corporate America expects in contracts and, and I understand both sides of it because I always tried to put myself in, in the corporate America shoes and, and understand why they would, you know, come in and say, I'm only going to give you this when I thought I was worth, you know, something else. Um, but, but I, I, you know, I began to, to look at those things and be a part of those things and try to really learn and study. And, and, uh, and now I get to use that experience to, to help other athletes and to, to help other companies and, and businesses um, uh, make win-win situations for both of them. So, um, so between that and, and the businesses that I've been starting and, and, and those types of things, uh, it's, it's given me a lot of opportunity. Um, and, but it's still up to me to go out and, and make it happen. And so that's what I'm trying to do now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. We've got more from Brian Clay in just a moment, the world's greatest athlete. But I just wanted to remind you that for you, the listeners of the Best in the World with Richard Parr podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. They've got so many books. I've listened to so many from Daniel Bryan's Yes to How I Lost a Million Dollars, all different types of books. Boris Johnson's book on Winston Churchill, lots of titles you can listen to. In fact, 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or MP3 player. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash best. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash best for your free audiobook. Let's get some more free knowledge from Brian Clay. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Of course, being an athlete, you don't earn the same type of money as an NFL player or a basketball player or anything like that. And a lot of you are often scraping for sponsors and to get supported for to get money. What, what kind of advice would you give the upcoming athlete who, who's trying to get sponsorship, trying to get funding? Are there any techniques or suggestions you'd give to them? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how other athletes do it. Um, I tend to see a lot of athletes that um, will look at the traditional ways of making money in their sport, um, and because that's how it's always been done, that's how they think they need to do it. And and so a lot of athletes and a lot of uh, coaches and a lot of um, uh, uh, market marketing reps and, and things like that will tell athletes, Hey, listen, just go out and compete. I don't want you to think about anything else. I just want you to go out and compete and I want you to win. And you know, when you win, that's when the sponsorships will come and, and they'll stick with some very traditional sponsorships. Um, and those sponsorships tend to look like, Hey, um, you win and we'll give you the X amount of money and you'll do X amount of, you know, uh, appearances a year for us. And, and, uh, and that's kind of the traditional way that it works. Um, I've found in my career that, um, that those, those are great. And there's, there are definitely, um, you know, there's a time for your shoe sponsor and, and the bonuses and things like that are all great. There's nothing wrong with that structure. But, but what I found is, is that, um, when you're not winning, uh, and you have deals that are set up like that, um, you lose, you lose on both fronts. And, and that's, that's a hard place for an athlete to be. What, what do you do when you're not 24 anymore or, you know, a youngster anymore and you're not going out there every day and winning every race that you've got? Um, your life as an athlete, uh, is, is so short already. You know, you might have a 10 year career. Some people don't even get that. Um, where you're making money, and uh, if if you're only making you know a few hundred thousand dollars a year over you know five years or ten years or whatever it might be, um, don't get me wrong, that's great money. It's really good money, but um, but you're not set for life. 
Um, and most athletes aren't smart with their money and they don't watch what they're spending their money on. And, you know, they may not be putting money into retirement and, and, and preparing for the future. And so uh, what I always try to tell athletes is you need to start using your uh, career um, as an athlete, as a way to um, hone in on skills that will make you valuable to your sponsors and to corporations um, that don't uh, require you to, to win. Um, and so as an athlete, you've got to start thinking about, okay, what do sponsors, what do my sponsors, what do, um, what do uh, corporations uh, and, and different organizations, what do they value um, besides winning? Um, because I want people to continue to call me to do appearances. I want people to call me to do consulting. I want people to call me to do speaking engagements and, and different things like that. You know, even though I'm not necessarily number one. Um, and so, uh, so that's what I usually try to talk to athletes about doing. And, and that might look different for all kinds of different, um, uh, you know, organizations and things, but, but, but that's what you've got to hone in on. For me, it was, it was understanding that people wanted, uh, people value athletes that can speak. People value athletes that can, can walk into a room and work a room for them with uh, potential donors or things like that that can articulate their their company and their company's values and needs. Um, people that can can read um, uh, 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 kind of a, a deck on on a company or on an organization or on a program, understand it, and then articulate that back to potential donors and things, um, or potential employees or, or or just regular employees, but but can get people to, to come on board and, and jump on board with whatever it is they're trying to do. And so that communication um, is a skill that I tried to work on and that I tried to get good at because I, I understood that if I could do that for companies, it didn't matter what company it was, they'd all find that valuable and they all want you to be a part of that. And so, um, so those are some of the things that I've, uh, that I've tried to, to do. And those are some of the things that I would tell athletes, like don't, you know, one, it's not a sponsorship you have to look at every deal that you get as a partnership. And that means that you're going to work um, just as hard as the organization or the company is going to work to create a long lasting uh, relationship. Thank you. Long lasting relationship that, uh, that is beneficial for both parties. Um, and that's not always, like I said, the, the mindset that we take as athletes. A lot of times as athletes, we say, Hey, listen, we're the talent, we're out winning and I'm going to go out and win and you're going to pay me that money and you're going to be happy about paying me that money because you should feel lucky um, to, to be able to put my name and my picture on your brand. Um, and like I said, that's good while you're winning. But the second you don't win anymore, that goes away. Um, and I think that's a harsh reality that a lot of athletes find when they're done with their careers. Do you think the Olympics should allow athletes to have their own sponsors on what they wear? Um, I mean, listen, I can't tell you what the Olympics should allow and shouldn't allow, right? Um, that's a hard uh, problem to solve. I, I, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand, um, you know, I've had some big sponsors uh, like, like BP, um, and I actually remember uh, sitting down with, with uh, the guy that was in charge of Olympic sponsorships for BP um, when I was competing and, and having a conversation with him and saying, hey, listen, uh, you know, I'm an athlete, but, you know, what is it? Like, talk to me. Tell me why things like Rule 40 are important to, to an organization like you. Like, convince me as an athlete why I should, why I should understand and, and be okay with something like Rule 40. And I remember having a conversation with him, a very candid conversation. He was somebody that I trusted, somebody that has been committed to me and my family, um, whether I won or lost, um, somebody that, that, that I thought was just an amazing person. And so I was able to sit down and have this conversation with him. And, and you know what? I, I get it. 
I understand what they're trying to do. Um, I understand why the Olympic Committee is protecting um, the rights of their sponsors. Um, but I also understand what athletes are trying to do. And, and I understand what it's like to be an athlete and to work your entire life, you know, to build this brand that is worth something and to have every, to have yourself feel like everybody is, um, is making money off of the, the hard work and the lifetime of hard work that you put in, except for you. You know, it seems like everybody's profiting except for you. Um, and so I understand that from both sides. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what the, the impact would be to the games if that rule was changed. I don't know what the impact to the games would be if, if athletes were allowed to have their own sponsorships. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, I don't know what the impact to the, the, the athletes will be if, if the Olympics continues to operate the way they are. Um, we already are losing, you know, athlete after athlete after athlete to other sports. Um, you know, here in America, you know, you've got some insanely talented people that will not run track and field and will go to play football or go to play baseball or go to play basketball um, or soccer um, or, or some of these other sports um, over track and field because in terms of pay, they know they can make way more money uh, doing that. Um, you know, in, 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 in track and field to, to make a lot of money, you've got to be a medalist. Um, that's the only way to guarantee that you're going to make a, you know, a decent amount of money in your career. I mean, if you're top 10 in the sprints, you know, you might make pretty good money, that sort of thing. But, but really for most of the athletes to, to, to try to, to know that you're going to make a lot of money, you've got to be a medalist. And even as a medalist, you probably aren't making as much as, you know, the top guys in the NFL are making, but, when you think about, um, you know, league minimums and things like that, that the NFL has, um, or that the NHL has, or that the NBA has, or the MLB has, um, those are some things that, that they have in place for the, the developmental people, for the, for all the people that aren't the top at the game, um, that come in, they say, listen, if you're going to be this, you have a league minimum, you're going to make X amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars per year even if you're sitting on the bench, you know what I mean? Even if you're not one of the stars, because we want you to be able to, to, to live and to, to do those types of things in track and field. We don't have those types of things to support, um, the, the younger athletes to support the development of, of the sport to support, uh, that sort of thing. I think the other thing that makes it hard in, in track and field is, um, uh, there's a bit of monopoly that goes on. Now, when I say monopoly, I don't mean it in, in, in the sense that the, the true definition of a monopoly, because I know there's a percentage and all that kind of stuff of the market that has to be taken over for it to be considered a monopoly. But, but when you look at, um, when you look at shoe companies, for example, I would love for someone to do a study on, uh, uh, the U S team and, and look at how many, uh, athletes out of the entire U S team, what is the market share of, of athletes per shoe company for the U S team? I would bet that if you did that, you would find that a large, a very large majority of those athletes are sponsored by one company. And that same company also has the sponsorship of USA track and field. And that same company also has the sponsorship of the United States Olympic committee. Um, and that same company also has a sponsorship of many of the other teams, uh, around the world. And so I think if you were to look at that and you were to actually like add up the percentage of control, um, that, that is given by that, uh, in terms of the market, 
um, you'd find out that um, we we don't have as diverse of a market space as as maybe they that company would like you to think that we do, um, and so and so that's what gets really difficult for for athletes is um, you know they they get to a place where um, uh, you know you can have companies like like a Red Bull who until recently. Um, I remember when, when Red Bull first came out and when they were sponsoring everybody, um, you know, they wanted nothing to do with Olympic sports. I remember being in the Red Bull office talking to one of the, the head guys at Red Bull for sponsorships. And I remember because I was trying to get a Red Bull sponsorship myself and, and I, had some, I had a buddy that was sponsored by Red Bull. And this was before, you know, they were huge. Um, and I remember him saying, Brian, um, we, we will not sponsor another um, Olympic athlete. And I said, well, why? And he said, because why would we sponsor an Olympic athlete when we can't even get any exposure for, for our product? You know, like you can't at the Olympic games on the largest, um, stage that you'll ever compete on. Um, we can't, you can't even like drink a Red Bull out on the, on the field. Um, even though that's what you use and you drink because of all the rules around it. You know, whereas like if Serena Williams was uh, or, you know, if another athlete was doing something and they wanted to drink a Red Bull, X Games athlete wanted to drink a Red Bull, they could pop open a can of Red Bull and drink it right there on TV and, you know, no big deal. Um, So, but I think every sport has those types of, of rules. I just think that, you know, from their perspective, it was like, it's, it's just a closed, you know, it was a closed kind of market space and they were like why would we sponsor athletes when you know at the super bowl of their event they can't they can't talk about their sponsor they can't they can't um tweet about their sponsor they can't facebook about their sponsor they can't instagram about their sponsor um they can't wear their sponsor you know um, they can't do any of those things um and so they were like why would we get into that you know so, so again, like I, I get it. Um, I think there are arguments on both sides. I, I would personally like to see more variety um, in terms of sponsors, um, in terms of the types of sponsorships um, that are that are out there. It would be great if, um, you know, um, if we could get uh, uh, if there was a way for for athletes um, to to have things that are in place for protection of them. Like it'd be great to have a league minimum, you know, it'd be great for athletes to be able to say, uh, I know that if I go and run professional track and field and I sign a, um, a shoe deal with, with athletes, or I know that if I, if I get drafted, you know, some, some sort of way, but if I get drafted, I'm going to, um, receive X amount of dollars, um, uh, every year that I can count on, you know, um, different things like that might help, but, but I think it's a really, really hard, um, problem to solve because I think it's going to take a a restructuring of some kind, um, in order to, to make it, uh, to make it work for everyone. Um, and it'll take a, a, a certain amount of time for it to build up and, and get to a place to where I think it's sustainable and that sort of thing. So, Fascinating, Brian. We've nearly run out of time. I just want to get in two very quick questions with you, if you don't mind. Uh, We're talking about money, and I want to be a little bit more lighthearted now, is that I hear you you do free dental work, because I I saw on YouTube that you removed one of your daughter's teeth by connecting it to a piece of string, attached it to a javelin, which you then threw, And, and obviously you're a (laughs) <laughs> you're an Olympic gold medalist, so you, you can throw that javelin pretty far. Where did you come up with this idea? Were you concerned about what could happen? No, you know, listen, the, the tooth was, I was mostly what I was concerned about is, you know, there are always going to be those people out there that see something like that and don't bother to, to think about the fact that, um, you know, that we actually thought it through and that I don't want to actually hurt my daughter and I would <laughs> never do anything to hurt my daughter. And so, you know, I was more concerned about what people would say than I was concerned about what would actually happen because, you know, the tooth was, was so loose. It was about ready to come out anyway. I mean, it was hanging on by, you know, a thread. 
Um, and, uh, and so the, the idea came from my wife and, and my daughter and they wanted me to do it. And so, uh, uh, my daughter was just begging me to do it. Um, and we had actually thought about it for my other kids as well. Her, my daughter's two older siblings. Um, and I just, I, I just didn't think it was good. And I said, you know, somebody's going to want, you know, say that, you know, call CPS and say that we're abusing our kid and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and finally she was, my daughter was begging me so much and the tooth was so loose that I said, okay, fine. So we drove down, we did it. And, uh, of course the first, you know, one of the first comments that we got, um, on social media was, I can't believe that he would do this. You know, somebody calls CPS, you know what I mean? And so I was like, ah, oh. then it started to go viral and I was like, oh no, like we're going to get into trouble. But then, uh, the, the, kind of the comments and things after that, the sport after that was great. And my daughter loved it. She got a bunch of attention for it. So she thinks she's famous now. And, um, and so it was just kind of a fun experience for the whole family. Oh, well, it looked fun from where I was watching. Of course, everyone has their, their own opinions on different things, but, but I, I enjoyed mm-hmm. watching it anyway, Brian. And I've enjoyed this interview with you and it's been Thank really you. interesting and you, you've given us a really good insight. Just before we go, why don't you tell our listeners how they can, keep up with what you're up to on social media any websites you want to promote and also any of those products businesses and anything to do with your motivational speaking or anything you've got going on which you'd like to plug on the show that would be wonderful yeah you know if people want to keep up with me and and kind of keep an eye on what i'm up to uh, they can visit my website which is just www.brianclay.com and that's brian with a y um, they can also find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, if they just look up my la- my name, uh, Brian Clay, uh, and and that's probably the best way. If they're you know if people want to partner with some of the companies that I'm doing, I've got a, a group fitness franchise that I've started, and I've also got a small tech company that I've started uh, where we build apps. Uh, if people want to get involved um, as an investor or as a supporter of those types of uh, things, um, they can reach out to me on my my website as well. Um, and people can check out my book. I think they can get it on Amazon. It's been out for a few years now, but uh, that tells a little bit more of my story in depth, and the, the title of that is Redemption. All right, well, I'll, I'll check that out, and of course, if, if you're doing fitness franchises, well, of course, you're, you're the world's greatest athlete, so you're probably the best person to partner up with and for people to, to learn and help earn themselves some money. Brian Clay, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for being the best in the world. Not a problem. Thank you very much for having me. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Thanks so much to Brian Clay for being on this podcast. Right at the start of the decathlon at the Olympic Games, we have spoken to the 2008 champion. Thanks again to Brian Clay. Follow him on Twitter at Brian Clay. And you can also follow me at Richard underscore Bar. I really appreciate your thoughts on the show, what you like, what you don't like, any questions you'd like to ask, what kind of guests you'd like to have on the show. I don't normally tell you who next week's guest is on the current show episode, but I'm going to tell you next week we are in the ring. We are in the boxing ring speaking to a current boxing world champion don't miss it there's gonna be details on my twitter page there's a few clues already if you follow at richard underscore par but we have a current world boxing champion on the show don't miss it that will be out next wednesday you can also find out all kinds of information about the best in the world with richard par on the facebook page facebook.com forward slash best in the world with richard par And also on the website, there's all the old podcasts, all of the ones we've ever done. That's at richardparr.net. Of course, well, richardparr.net forward slash podcast will take you directly to the podcast page. So check all of that out. And if you're an athletics fan, you've enjoyed Brian Clay, why don't you go back and listen to one of the previous podcasts? For example, we had Darren Campbell on a 4 by 100 meters gold medalist. We've also got other Olympians on the show, such as Ellen Hoog, she was on episode two, Etienne Stott, who won gold in canoeing in 2012, and so many other great guests that you can learn from. Former world record holders, current world record holders, world number ones, Olympic champions, world champions, they're all here. They're all here on The Best in the World. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be bringing you another great guest next Wednesday. 
If you get a chance and you're on iTunes, please press the subscribe button. Please give me a rating and review. It really helps me and the show. But for now, thank you so much for your time and I'll speak to you again next week. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.